Hello friends, welcome to Fiverr Variety Hour. I'm Emily Wolscheid and Kat Eldred is not here today because we normally record our intros separately, um, even though we Zoom together all the time for our interviews. Um, we had to take a little bit of a break from getting podcasts out because we both had a lot of deadlines and had school wrapping up for our kiddos and everything. So we should be returning to a regular release schedule here and have a couple more interviews uh, that are in edits right now. But today uh, we're releasing Lori Ivesque from Natural Cycles Farm. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we got this out all at once because the fleece sale this weekend with Woolen Fiber Arts Group is going on. Um, you may have listened to our episode with Ellen Zawada, who was the founder of Woolen Fiber Arts Group. And uh, we kind of mentioned there was a fleece sale coming up, and that is this weekend, Jan June 12th and 13th, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, Lori's sale will be on Sunday at noon, and that's Eastern Standard Time. So we hope that you'll go check that out and you'll go and support some of these farms because they could sure use our support and help uh, moving some of those fleeces so they can keep caring for those animals and we can keep uh, that great renewable resource going. So um, I hope you really enjoy this podcast. We really enjoyed talking with Lori. Uh, she is just a wealth of information and I've known her for years, but I really learned a lot from her, even just from this conversation that I never knew before about her and from her. So uh, we hope you really enjoy it. Um, some little housekeeping things. I will have some merch up on the website pretty soon. And we were able to kind of debut some of that over the weekend, uh, this past weekend, because Kat and I shared a booth at Tip of the Mitt Fiber Fair up in Petoskey. Uh, it was great to be back in person and doing a show and um, just being around a lot of people that we had not seen in a long time, including each other. It had been since September of 2019, I think, since Kat and I had seen each other in person. So it was a big deal. It was a lot of fun. And we tried to just enjoy ourselves and get back into the groove of doing shows. So, um, but I think that we'll have some interviews based on having been there and uh, some pretty cool stuff happened while we were there. So I hope that we get a chance to maybe just do a hostful or something, just a host podcast. Um, so we can kind of break down our fun weekend. But uh, in the meantime, enjoy this interview with Lori Avesque and you can find her uh, online at naturalcyclesfarm.com. You can also find her just about anywhere else. If you look up natural cycles farm and uh, yeah, let's get into it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you are up to how many ram lambs? Six. Wow. That's two sets of twins and then two singles. Oh, wow. And there's, um, there's a couple ewes. I don't know for sure whether they're pregnant. If they are, they're really caught at the last end. Mm -hmm. um, so assuming they are pregnant, that it, it's 18 ewes that are, yeah. So I, 18 and considering, considering two out of four ewes so far have had twins, there, there's going to be a lot of lambs jumping around. Yeah, there are. Sure yeah. are. So what got you started on this crazy journey then? 
fiber. <laughs> um, I suppose there's a long and a short version. The, the long version is that I was taught to knit by one of my aunts when I was probably six or eight. And all I remember about that is that I kept this, this little, it was about this wide, six inches wide and maybe an inch long. I kept that little piece of knitting for years. I don't know what happened to it, but um, so there was a lot, it intrigued me and there was a long time that I didn't do a lot with it, um, but I did get into sewing really early um, and started sewing most of my own clothes. T actually took a tailoring and pattern making class when I was still in high school. I think it was a night class at a community college um, and did some flat pattern design and then went to college and because I was good at math and science, I was told I should go be an engineer. Um, and I, I was an engineer for 10 years and did kind of fiber on the side. And it really wasn't a good fit. The engineering, not so much the technical stuff, but the whole engineering type mindset of um, analyzing everything and that just didn't fit with me, even though I was good at math and science. So I'm not quite sure how that, how that works. Um, That's fascinating. I, I really like focused a lot on math and science. I went to a math science center in high school and then I went and got an art degree. <laughs> so I felt well, embarrassed I by it because I, I, because I felt like I should have went into that field, you know? Yeah, well, I probably would have felt embarrassed or either that or my parents wouldn't wouldn't have paid for my college education because I think in many ways I um, fulfilled some dreams of my parents. My dad started out in engineering school and for various reasons switched to business and spent his life as a salesman. My mom was she should have been either born a decade, a generation later when opportunities were greater for women, or she should have somehow found some moxie and defied her parents and everyone and went and got a career anyway. So in many ways, I was fulfilling my parents' dreams of becoming an engineer and becoming a woman with a career, um, but it just didn't work for me. So um, while I was in, I my ex-husband um, is Australian and we went there to Australia to live after we graduated from college. And that's where I learned how to spin. Um, and I did some, some fiber classes at some local um, community center. And long story short, we moved back here. I worked as an engineer, we had kids. I decided not to go back to work and that gave me a little bit more opportunity to play with fiber. And I spent many years dabbling in, in, in all kinds of things, accumulated an incredible 
stack of works in progress, as well as some finished things. And then started, started um, finding fiber expos, fiber festivals, and doing a little bit, but mostly I was, I was collecting all the tools and all the fiber for what I don't know. But then I... Sounds kind of serendipitous. Hmm? Sounds kind of serendipitous, Lori. Like, um, it was almost like you were, you know, gathering your tools and preparing, nesting your space beforehand. <laughs> I, 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 I was waiting for the opportunity in my life to actually do all the stuff that I really enjoy. I, I worked for Tillers International um, for six years, and I was developing classes for people to take. That's how I got to know Emily, because I recruited her as a spinning teacher, and I was teaching some die classes and I was doing a little bit more but as in many cases especially working for a nonprofit the demands on my time started increasing increasing and so the only time I was doing fiber stuff was related to the either the classes I was teaching or the classes I was helping other people develop and um, eventually I got a divorce, got repartnered, and we, my partner and I both wanted a farm. We both wanted livestock. And so I decided I'm just going to quit my job and see what happens. Um, How long have you been at the farm you guys are at? Because I, I noticed you had posted something about the progress you have made. We've been here just over four years. It was a farm that was, um, it used to have sheep and the owner was lost it through foreclosure. So many people, it, that's happened to so many people. But it was, Kat, as you said, it, my entry and development into a fiber artist was serendipitous. So was getting this farm. I, technology is fantastic when you work with a real estate agent they can send you messages to say that such and such a property has just shown up on, on the listing. And this was before we moved to the farm, obviously. And I was sitting at Pete's table at his place and this notice came up and I looked at it and it took me, you know, a couple extra seconds looking through these pictures. And I said, wait a minute, um, Pete, we have to buy this farm. So um, just like that, just like that. Um, and he, this was, I don't, how long have we been going out? A little bit more than a year. And he trusted me enough to say, oh, okay. And so I told the real estate agent that we have to go see it. Pete couldn't make it, so I came with the real estate agent and looked at it. We put in an offer without Pete actually seeing it. Um, 
And he, um, this was, when it's a farm like this and it was in foreclosure, it doesn't work like normal, normal purchases. You're, you're working with a bank and the bank um, they can do whatever they want. And so we were just about to go away to a farming conference and my real estate agent called me and said, we need to know your maximum offer. And then it, then all four offers will go to the bank and they'll decide who gets it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so we said, okay, so, cause you have no, it's not like the back and forth with a normal purchase. You just have to kind of punt and make your best guess and hope that other people don't outbid you. So we, by now Pete had seen the property. So, so he was at least a little bit more comfortable with just, just buying it sight unseen. So we put in an offer, we left for the conference and this was, luckily it was a cash offer because the timing would be such that we would have, I would have sold my house and we'd have the cash and could just roll it over. So that was, that was fine. But we got the call on the, on the Sunday morning, the day after the conference, we were still in New Mexico, which is where the conference was. And um, Brian, my real estate agent said, well, you've got the farm, <laughs> just like that. So- um, I Oh, think Lord, that, you bought the farm, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so, what, so that, hmm? oh, I was gonna say, what kind of a time frame happens then when, from when it gets accepted, then is it more conventional or is it completely different still? Yeah, from then on, it's pretty much more conventional. Once they accept your offer, it, it goes to the normal procedures that buying any house will. Um, but of course, since I was selling my house, that was going really slowly, even though I had an offer. So it ended up backwards and we had to do all the, let's borrow a little money from our retirement accounts and close on the farm. And then afterwards it can, we can pay back our retirement accounts. And it occurred over the, over the new year, which has all sorts of tax implications, but. Um, but so we moved in in March of 2017 and got sheep in April. Oh, at least you waited a while. Yeah, yeah. This was four. We got four sheep and one goat. Um, the sheep was the sheep were Tunis Merino crosses that had been at Tiller's. And, you know, I never thought consciously about how much serendipity was involved in all this, but it's quite amazing, really. The woman who had, had owned the sheep at Tiller's, even though they were at Tiller's, she lived nearby. Tiller's had asked her to take the sheep back, and she decided after a while that she really couldn't keep them. And she happened to come to the farmer's market in Kalamazoo see me and ask me 
if she knew anyone who would like these Tunis Merino crosses and one Angora goat. And I said, well, I would. So, so we then drove to her house. How did we get them? Oh, I just found someone who could pick, who could, um, had a truck who could help me pick them up and bring them back here. So, so that got us the Tunis Merino crosses and the, the Angora goats. I don't like Angora goats. <laughs> yeah, I know your feelings about goats, Lori. <laughs> um, yes, you know, this is an old Angora goat with horns and she pushed everyone out of the way. So she didn't last very long here, found another home. So you got the Tunis Merino. Do you want to explain why Tunis was so important to keep? Because I know that you've continued to acquire as much Tunis as you could. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Tunis sheep are a, they're the first breed of sheep that were developed in the United States. Um, they were a cross, they're a cross between a Tunisian sheep, a red-faced, um, originally a fat-tailed sheep, and some other breeds, and maybe this is where that, that, um, that list of questions would have helped, and I could have had the thing up here, but I don't remember what other, what other breeds that's okay. That's something that we can just put a link to the information. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a, it's a, it's a heritage breed. Um, it's on the livestock conservancies threatened, threatened. Yeah. I think they're at the threatened category. They're a, they have a medium wool. Um, it's considered a down like breed so it's really bouncy it has a lot of um it kind of resists felting not as much as true down breeds but it makes great socks and outerwear and it's really nice from a fiber perspective the sheep themselves are incredibly friendly and curious they're always the ones who will come up to us. They'll be the first to try to look and investigate something new. Um, we do 100% pasture. So during the pasture season, they're out on, the, on pasture in these little movable enclosures. And all of the other sheep get fairly feral and flighty. They don't, um, they don't remain friendly throughout the year but the Tunis, the Tunis do. Um, and they're, um, they're also a very good meat breed. They're on the, um, are you guys familiar with the Slow Food Organization? It's a- No, um, please tell us more. <laughs> okay. So the Slow Food Organization is, it was originally started in Italy by Carlo Petrini, I believe his name is, who was looking at how many traditional breeds of animals and varieties of fruits and vegetables in Europe, especially were being lost with the 
introduction of hybrids and newer breeds and newer varieties. And all of these traditional varieties and breeds were around for specific purposes. So there are chickens that are great at foraging. There are chickens that have um, tremendous egg production or nice meaty bodies with sheep. You've got the great um, fiber producers. You've got the wide range of different types of fiber that were that are produced by sheep for, have been used for different purposes. And all of these varieties were being kind of tossed away for newer varieties. Thus, we have so many people think Merino's the one and only um, fiber breed, but there's so many other with the example of sheep, there's so many other breeds for so many purposes that are really important. The Tunis breed as a meat animal was, um, it's described by chefs as one of the best tasting, tasting lamb varieties. And so Tunis has this, this double benefit to me. It's a fantastic it's a fantastic fiber breed. It's a fantastic meat breed and um, has, it's a interesting looking animal and it's tremendously curious. And also it's suggested that it could possibly be a triple purpose breed, meaning it could be a milking animal as well. So oh, right. all of those reasons combined are why, why I, um, really like the tunas variety. Have you considered going the um, the milk direction at all? Only for um, personal use. The, um, the regulatory landscape for um, for dairy in this country is really prohibitive. Um, and just, just trying to put in, a, a dairy operation, you know, quarter to half a million dollars for that is not something I'm, I'm interested in. Yeah. So what about in terms of, is it good for soap? Cause I know people talk about goat's milk soap. Is there a use in sheep's milk soap or is it the same problem? Um, no, it's not the same problem. I can easily make soap out of out of the sheep's milk. And if you're if you're familiar with, with goat's milk soap, goat's milk has a fairly high butter fat in it. Sheep's milk is even higher butter fat. So if you're looking at the um, cosmetic aspects of the benefits of goat's milk soap, you're going to have more fat and a creamier texture with sheep's milk soap. So that's, that's on the list of things that I want to try as well. Aha, the future for Lori. <laughs> so because you have been focusing a lot more on the shave them to save them breeds, you know, what other uh, sheep have you brought onto the farm that are part of that? Um, that goes back to the story of how I got my fiber animals. There's a lady up 
in Northern Michigan, Rose Hebden. You probably possibly both know her. I know Emily does. Um, she's not a fiber person per se, but she really likes sheep. Um, her husband raises cattle and I guess she just decided she needed to have something to, to raise, but she doesn't raise um, purebreds. She, she plays around with the breeds and crosses all kinds of weird combinations. And after I got the tunis, I was still looking for more, um, some actual, some more finer fiber animals. And Emily actually hooked me up with Rose. And Rose was at the time looking to reduce her flock. So for a really good price, I got a dozen mixed breed fiber animals. And they're crosses that are, there's so many different combinations in the animals that it's, it's just amazing. Some of the, um, I miss like four and five breeds in some of them. Four to five breeds in some of them. And since, since the, one of the, the two rams I got from her were bred with the ewes that I got from her, some of the, some of the offspring that we've had will have seven or eight breeds in them. <laughs> but probably more than half of them have anywhere from 15 to 65% CVM, California variegated mutant, and or Rommeldale. So as I was looking at the Livestock Conservancy um, sheep breed list, I thought I'd like to get something, I, I'd like to narrow down my, um, the breeds that I have. And the best way to do that is first by getting a purebred ram and which one would I want to have. And since I had so many CVM, so many animals with CVM heritage, I decided to go that way. Um, and two, let's see, through Woolen Fiber Arts, I found two people in Michigan who raised CVM. One is Ellen Zawada, who started Woolen Fiber Arts. And the other is a woman named Melissa Schall out of Water Valite. And it, with the pandemic last year, it worked out much easier to go west to Water Valite than east to where Ellen was. And so that's where I got my ram. And I also got one you who happens to be his sister, so I can't breed them. But I now have um, two CVM, purebred CVMs. And so long term, I think that's, at least for some of my animals, that's one of the breeds I'll um, try to focus a little bit more on. So I have two fleeces that I get to play with this year of the CVM. So. And what are the characteristics of the CVM fleece? I mean, what are the, because it feels like, 
each different type of um, each different breed or breeds or combination has a really good application. And it's, it's really, you know, knowing what you want to be making and then working back to figure out what you want to use for it sometimes. But what does that CVM work well for? Well, the CVM is considered a fine fiber breed. So it will have um, the finer micron counts. Um, it's a it's probably got a, it's got a little bit longer staple length than, than Merino. So I think that gives it a little bit more flexibility in what you can use it for. Mm -hmm. um, it comes in a variety of colors, which is I think one of the biggest um, advantages for, for a farmer who's raising fiber animals for spinner, as a spinner's flock. Um, it, which that's what it, you're doing, really. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so it's just it just the decision to go with CBM was more based on what I had already and what my 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 use what made sense with the use I had. Um, I have a lot of white fiber animals now anyway. And so going with something that had a variety of color was an advantage. And the fact that the CVM is on the um, conservancies list was also an advantage. So it gives me kind of the two, not, it gives me two types of, of fiber. It gives a finer fiber for a um, really luscious spin and more of a workhorse type fiber that's good for outerwear and long wearing socks and things like that, which is what I get with the tunas. Um, so you named your farm Natural Cycles Farm. And so you do more than just things with sheep and you kind of touched on one of the other things that I know you are very passionate about which was uh natural food sheds and well food sheds not natural food sheds um but food sheds and fiber sheds kind of go hand in hand you know we, we've really been um not only were we observing that before we started talking to all of these wonderful people through the podcast but you know we we made that connection as well and um you know not just growing food, but you're also growing botanicals, right? Because you're you're growing things for natural dyeing and um, the sheep. So I, you know, I'm I'm assuming that informed choosing the name for your farm too. Yep, the farm name comes from a number of different aspects. One, uh, the most obvious and direct, is the cycles of the year, the cycles of the farm. Um, one sort of background note is that we do both like to bicycle and Pete used to be a bicycle racer and owned a bike shop. So there's that. And the, the idea that a farm is an organism with all of the animals plants, insects, 
birds and all of the life that is on the farm creates an organism of its own and has a character which um, just it, it describes, the, the character describes the farm itself. So a lot of the things that we have noticed since we've we arrived here are that we're becoming a um, an attractive stopping point for birds that a lot of people don't see around anymore, like meadowlarks and bobolinks and a lot of those. We were talking at one farmer's market with a man in Kalamazoo who spends a lot of time building um, bluebird houses and getting people to incorporate things into their landscapes to attract birds. And when Pete said that we have bobolinks, he was really surprised because they're not seen very often anymore just because of loss of habitat for the for birds that basically nest in pastures. There aren't that many farmers around who pasture their animals. They may have paddocks where they kind of sort of eat what's living in the pastures, but they primarily rely on hay. And if you've got a hay field and it's being hayed three, maybe four times a year, that doesn't give birds very much of an opportunity to, to successfully nest and fledge um, younger birds. So being able to have an area where the birds can um, complete the entire nesting season, it seems to be an attraction. And sometimes, you know, you wonder, so, we seem to have more bobolinks here this year than last year. I wonder if they communicate, you know, hey, there's, 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 this is where you can come and have a successful nest. But not to. <laughs> I, I like to think there's lots of communication. Um, we also have a lot of uh, monarch butterflies that work their way through. Um, the previous owner was a bit of a, I think he had a, well, he was into unusual plants and we have this one tree that somewhere I have it written down what the name is, but it's not native to this area, but it, it flowers in mid to late September and it attracts butterflies and bees. And there are some times in September if the, if the bloom of the tree is just, just right, that it will be covered with like hundreds of monarch butterflies. And things like that are the kinds of things we notice and we really work very hard to um, support things like that happening on the farm. So that's all part of the, the natural cycles. We don't use any um, chemical herbicides, pesticides or fertilizers. So from that perspective, we fit into the organic category, but we like to 
we like to um, say that we're beyond organic because we look to um, create soil. We look to encourage the the microbiome of the of the soil because without that living soil, we're never going to be able to create um, food that really nourishes us. Um, after last year, the I was looking at some of our fleeces for this year and they're just amazing. The, the, the quality of the wool, the, the length of the fibers, not to mention the, the, the lack of, of vegetable matter, which is at least mostly due to how I changed my feeding, but the quality of the fiber comes from the quality of the pasture and the quality of the food the animals are eating. And that's been really important to us. So we grow grass and we use the, we're grass farmers, and we use the animals to eat the grass, which encourages the roots to grow, which encourages that interplay between all the bacteria, the fungi, the protozoa, all the um, earthworms and all the life that's beneath the soil that um, is the basis of that cycle of life on the farm. And so that's that's really important to us. And that thinks about that that whole that whole cycle as an organism, thinking about like down deep, the the whole organism into the earth that is also playing back and forth. And is that is that the idea behind permaculture, or is it, or is it just a? I'm, no, I'm super curious. It can be, it can be the basis with permaculture. Um, Pete and I both have a have a problem with how a lot of permaculture is done because we look at the, our farm as we're slowly developing permaculture, but we we're doing it a little at a time. Like we'll plant a couple grapevines or a serviceberry tree, and you have to see how that plant fits into your environment and encourage that. A lot of permaculturists will go and plant several hundred fruit trees or something like that. And that's a whole lot more like the conventional agriculture idea, even if it's organic, than it is the more taking after nature. Nature doesn't go out and plant a hundred fruit trees. Nature has one or a dozen fruit trees that may start up because some bird ate a cherry and dropped the, the seed somewhere and it started growing. Yeah, and I haven't even thought like, about this. Like, that's fascinating. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's okay. If the, if the conditions are right, that tree will grow and it will thrive, but it requires a lot of other things to go right as well. And bringing in outside resources 
like compost and stuff like that from off off the farm is fits in more to the cat with the category of conventional organic as opposed to what we're trying to do. A lot of what we're trying to do can be compared to biodynamic as opposed to organic. So that's the biodynamic methods look at a farm as an organism and works to support all the systems on the farm. So that's more how we are. Okay, I haven't heard that particular um, categorization before biodynamic, but that totally makes sense. And I'm now like wanting to go and look up all of the things. <laughs> but how do the, um, how does growing the flock affect that? So that that's a lot of a lot of farmers will say that that each farm or each plot of land has a certain carrying capacity or number of animals that it can support, and and that is true to a certain extent. Um, we use a method for grazing called holistic grazing that was that was developed by a guy by the name of Alan Savory who did work in in Africa looking at how when when countries decide to save land and and often they keep grazing animals out of that preserve. And there is over time a degradation actually of the land. And if you think about how a lot of these natural ecosystems developed, all natural ecosystems have herbivores. The herbivores eat the grasses, the shrubs, the, the forbs like dandelion and things like that. And when they, if they're in their natural habitat, they'll move to an area, eat a little bit, and then move on. But they're also urinating and defecating and trampling the, on the grasses and stuff that they don't eat. And that has the effect of their hooves by trampling down the vegetation that they don't eat is going to push that vegetation closer in contact with the soil so that it's available for the soil microbes to decompose by eating little bits of the grass, grasses and forbs that encourages the regrowth of those plants and they don't stay in an area long enough to eat it all the way down to nothing, which means that they eat a more varied diet. So they'll eat things that conventional wisdom tells us are toxic to the animals. As an example, my sheep really love milkweed. And if you read any 
more modern handbook on sheep, you will be told that milkweed is toxic to sheep. But what they do is they, if they're moved around constantly, they never eat that much of any one thing. And even though it has components that can be toxic, there's this feedback that they'll eat a little bit of it. And if there's a fairly rapid effect on their digestion, like they get a tummy ache, they stop eating it, but it doesn't mean they stay away from it forever because there's nutrients in all of the plants in a, in a um, natural area. So they'll gradually learn that they, that they gain benefits from all of the plants out there. And there's this, there's this innate nutritional wisdom that animals do have that guides them in eating what they need. So what the, so the way we graze the animals is we have this port, we have portable electric fencing. We have shelters out in the pasture, which we move every day along with the fencing. So the animals are only on an area for a day to a day and a half at the most. Sometimes we move them twice a day, depending on how fast the grass is, how fast the plants are, are growing. And in order to control parasites, which, are, which can be a problem with sheep, we don't go back and graze the same area any more often than every 60 days. So what this does is that over time, the organic matter of the soil increases, the microbiome of the soil increases in amount, the depth of the roots of the pasture are going to go way, way down. And the symbiotic relationship between the plant roots and especially the fungal component of the, of the soil actually can make available all the nutrients that animals will need. And so we don't have to add any fertilizer or anything else to it. And over time, <laughs> we'll be able to increase the carrying capacity of the soil. So even though right now we have 34 sheep and four steers, we could easily, if in say five years, when as we increase the health of the soil, we could probably triple that. Wow. Um, that was really very fascinating. It was really um, interesting to hear all of that. You kind of put on your teaching hat for a minute there. Um, but I love how it ties into uh, raising the sheep. And, you know, it's like I kind of expected all of that from you and, and hoped for it. So um, I think these are parts and pieces of raising sheep that people don't always think about even who do raise sheep. And 
which is unfortunate, but it's also an education thing and something that I'm sure you had to learn over time too. And you already had some background in some of that. So mm -hmm. it was probably a little easier for you to get into that. It was, it kind of was as if you were preparing for this your entire mm -hmm. life, you know, and, um, the one thing you haven't really talked much about that I would love to hear about is natural dyeing because I've always really admired that that is something that you pretty much strictly do for your dyeing and that you are, you know, you, you are constantly practicing it. So I'd love to hear about what you grow on the farm and what was already there because I think you already had some smoke bush there, right? And um, did I say that? Is that right? Smoke it's smoke tree tree okay so yeah. like I, I knew you had some stuff already on the farm which like since uh, since you were going to teach that workshop a while back i I'm, I'm noticing those trees now in people's yards and i never noticed them before <laughs> and so it's really fun to like notice these natural dye plants that happen to just be like an ornamental thing or something but um yeah just hearing what you have on the farm what you grow and like how you utilize it to not just in your own things but um, helping others. Yeah, I, um, I think that the natural dyeing is an outgrowth of my, um, of being an organic farmer. Um, just like, just like the not wanting to use herbicides and pesticides, the idea of decreasing reliance on um, things that are derived from fossil fuels has always been a passion of mine. And I share, we share that passion, both Pete and I, of trying to decrease our carbon footprint. So I started doing natural dyeing maybe around 2006. And I started like many many people do by just finding things in my backyard on um, on walks that I go and seeing what colors resulted. And I probably have tried everything that I can find reference to mostly in books that has been used as a natural dye. I have done a few things that I've tried dying with a few things that um, that I can't find reference to in in um, books, but I I kind of come at at it with the the idea that I will try a lot of different things to see if they result in something that's a worthwhile color. And if it, I stick with it, if it doesn't take a huge amount of time to collect, if the color that results is something that I can't more easily get with something else. Um, so I, I try to avoid things that are, that give just kind of ordinary colors. But so, so I, I reached the point where I wanted to be able to grow a few things for natural dyes. 
one thing that was on the farm and is quite ubiquitous throughout much of um, this region is goldenrod. Um, that's a wonderful, wonderful color. I use that a lot. Um, mostly like, like a lot of my, um, the food I eat, I try to use that only when it's actually blooming because I think that it, it gives, it gives the best color when it's picked fresh and used then. So I have that. Um, it's so happy. It's such a happy color. Oh, it's, it's a wonderful color. And trying to think ever since ever since fiber expo i have i have things put away in all different places so i don't know where everything is at the moment but i that using several i like to use uh, multiple mordants um and i know in 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 natural dye circles there's a bit of controversy about mordants and which ones to use, which ones to avoid, and the environmental impact of mordants. So I use four different mordants regularly. Um, potassium alum, which is considered the safest and um, easiest mordant to use. It's also a baking ingredient. So that's, that's probably the most common mordant for um, natural dyeing. I use copper, which is in the form of copper sulfate. Um, I use it in powdered form. Um, there's iron, which is ferrous sulfate. And I also use tin, which is stannous chloride. Um, alum, I will keep a mordant bath as, as long as I can and reuse that. Um, mordants, you, it used to be that you added, if you read an old book, you add an incredible amount of mordant to a dye bath. And they didn't talk about using them over again. And so you end up, ended up having to discard huge amounts of these metal containing chemicals. So whether it's alum or copper or tin, those three mordant baths I keep going and which is easy to do if you have a lot of storage space and a lot of glass containers. And that's something I recommend that anyone who gets into natural dyeing that they do. The iron, which is ferrous sulfite, um, if you're, on well water in most places in Michigan, you have the same chemical in, in, your, in your water. So that's one of the ones that and alum are ones that are, can safely be poured outside on the ground and the others I keep. So I use those for mordants. Um, yeah, I think I was talking a little bit, wanting to get into a little bit about the, the environmental impact of natural dyeing and why I decided to go the natural dye route as opposed to the chemical route. So most of the nat all the natural dyes are, they're natural. So they come from plants and roots and bugs and things like that. So I consider that if they're, as long as they're ethically harvested, that they're a renewable resource and um, 
and that's that part's important to me. If I can, if I can, whatever I can raise myself, I try to do. So in my dye, as far as the dyes that I grow myself, I grow Coreopsis, which is a wonderful cheery flower to have have growing in your in your garden. I do marigolds, which so many people use them for ornamental plants that it's just wonderful that they're also a fantastic dye plant. So I grow those. Sometimes I just buy a flat or two of, of marigolds. This year I was able to get some plants started, but I'll probably, um, probably buy a flat as well. That's becoming my go-to source for yellow. And it seems um, like that's a really good approachable way for someone to start is that because it's so accessible. Yeah. The marigold plants and play yeah. with them. Yeah, because it's, um, you know, historically the premier yellow has been weld, but that can be a difficult plant to grow. I have not been able to get it to grow at my, my farm here. I was able to grow it and it self-seeded itself at my old place, which had sandy soil without any problem at all. And I'm having a lot of trouble here. So, so it's actually coming, it's becoming my, Marigold is becoming my go-to source for yellow, um, which is why I want to, I need to grow a lot of it. That kind um, of goes back to your um, talking about how you introduce things slowly on the farm though, and see if they'll accept it. And it's like, you know that now, it's I know even just growing things ornamentally, I get sad when something won't grow at my house, but I finally get to a point where I'm like, I'm not buying another lupin because it's not going to grow here. <laughs> and yet I have all the lupins. Yeah, and my mom grows monsters of them now. So it, it's, it just happens that way. So, but that that's great that you were able to find something that, because yeah, marigolds are so accessible. So that's... Mm -hmm. And, and actually, um, even though I've tried, I've tried dying with just about any plant or, or portion of plant that's, um, that you can find even vaguely referred to as a dye plant. I am slowly getting to the point where, first of all, I want repeatability. And I find that you can get repeatability on the first, the, the front end of the dye bath, but I hate to lose all the rest of what's in there. Um, so I do exhaust a dye bath, but all the rest of those are really hard to repeat. Whereas the first one, I can repeat that. Um, and I got a drum carter, I don't know, maybe it's four years ago now and only just started using it over the last year and took a class on carding the color wheel and I I mean they were they were conventionally dyed fibers but it was red yellow and blue and I could make anything so that little light bulb went off and the way I'm taking my natural dyeing now is to 
is to concentrate on making really strong yellows, fantastic blues, and true reds, and from there, blending to get the colors that I want. And you bought yourself um, a big box of crayons to start playing and practicing, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, they're even right behind you. <laughs> I got a 120 crayon box and I, I've so far made, I, I've made a robin's egg blue, which you're not gonna be able to see it, but that's the color robin's egg blue. And it contains, so you can get, you can look up the red, blue, green, um, the, the, the formula for all the different colors. And you can, you can download that, those formulas for Crayola's 120 box set. So if I start with my red, which is a combination of matter and cochineal, and blue, which is indigo, and yellow. My go-to is marigold now, nice strong yellow, but I can also vary the, the shade by using Osage orange. And now with a drum carter and my own fiber, which I had, I think, close to 10 pounds of um, comb top that I had made from four of my finer fiber girls and I can make any color. So, so that gives me the opportunity to make, do all kinds of things with that. So I think in, in March, Wool and Fiber Arts did, they do a, palette of the month and and so I have that I mean that's all natural dyes and for our listeners um Lori's holding up a bat that actually fades from one color to the next really nicely and it has blues and oranges and reds and purple and it the fact that it's all done with blending from three basic colors. So pretty. Dyes, <laughs> it's just so exciting. And I don't like magic. It is. It You're is. painting with wool. And yeah. And so the other thing, sorry, I dropped a card. So the other thing I'm trying to do is when I take a fleece to a fiber mill, I'm trying to decide where best to focus my time and energy. Because on the farm, it's just Pete and I, and we've got vegetables produced, farmer's market, fiber shows, and all this stuff. And where's the best use of my time and that most economical use of my time. So if I have really clean fleeces from a vegetable matter perspective, I can skirt them, then I can take them to a mill to get them to wash it because washing when you're working with one pound of wool, raw wool at a time and a five gallon container and a septic system 
is incredibly time consuming and not the best use of my time. So then I get that back from the mill. I can divide a fleece in half, dye one half of it yellow with my marigolds, one half of it blue with my indigo and take it back to the mill and get green roving back. So it's, it's a much more complicated process than using the chemical dyes. And I, I'm not yet totally convinced that um, just how big the market is of people willing to pay for what it takes to produce that, that fiber. But I've also decided that that is who I am. And as an artist, there are people there out there who are willing to pay for a totally natural product and one that the, the, the quality and the colors are directly from my farm and from nature and also through the way I'm raising my animals and growing my diet materials, I'm also bringing life back to this farm that we have. Well, and I think that this is something that we're trying to do is provide um, education for people who may not know that that's even available, but want to start modifying their own footprint and figure out how to do that in those steps and how is their time best spent reaching out to people like you because they may be living in a city where they can't have a flock of sheep but they want to learn how to work with those natural fibers and those natural colors and can people find where can people find your products well thanks to the pandemic we were kind of forced to create a website and our website is naturalcyclesfarm.com. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, which is also at Natural Cycles Farm, I think. Yeah. And didn't you recently get a new logo too? Yes. Because I saw yes. something about that and it looked really cool. It's, um... <laughs> I got a really small version of it right here. Oh, we can we can pop it up on there as yeah, part yeah. of I'll throw it up on the um the actual cover of the podcast. Okay. Yeah, it's it brings in it's a Celtic ring mm -hmm. with with two different colors in it and a a tree and it has a image of a barn and a chicken and a uh a sheep so awesome um, oh yeah because you also raise chickens yep we raise chickens and the one of the breeds we raise is also a slow food arc of taste breed as well so so that's you're raising them for both um eggs and meat yeah we're not selling the meat we're, we're we just we eat them yeah oh darn because <laughs> i'm always looking for a, a more local source of chicken that that gets back to the the regulatory aspects and 
technically, according to Michigan food law, we can actually on-farm process up to an enormous quantity, like 5,000 birds and sell direct to a customer. Um, unfortunately, our insurance company doesn't like that, even though it's technically, even though it's officially legal, so. Gotcha. Well, I hear that so the eggs are good from a, a quality source. Um, they're more... very good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you know, obviously we can find you on your website and on social media, but you also have been selling through some online venues. Did you want to, do you have any events coming up that way with a virtual event? I will be do. I'm, I haven't been confirmed yet, but I, I don't think I'll have any problem with it. I will be on the wool and fiber arts June raw fleece sale. I hope to have, um, I probably won't have CBM this year since I only have two to play with, um, but I should have a couple uh, Tunis fleeces. Um, I will have several Tunis Merino crosses, which are just absolutely wonderful. It's combining the softness of a merino with the bounce of the. Well, they are. I have a skein of that that I purchased. And I was actually staying with a friend who's a spinner. And I got back to her house and she's like, look at this roving that I bought. I'm like, I got the yard. And so oh. I was sitting there swatching and she was sitting there spinning. And it just was like boingy, boingy, boingy. It yeah. was so great. Oh, it's good. So I'll have some of those. And then some of the. I'll have some of the um, the unique fiber cross fleeces available as well. Um, after that, if you're in the Kalamazoo or Allegan area, I do bring yarns and dryer balls occasionally spinning fiber to the Allegan and the Kalamazoo farmers markets. Um, for people who are looking for spinning, um, spinning wool, if you, if you come, I don't always bring it, but I can easily bring it the following week. Um, and fingers crossed, the Michigan Fiber Festival is set to go ahead in person in August at the Allegan County Fairgrounds and I will be there and looking forward to that. Great. Was there anything else you wanted to share with anybody today? <laughs> Just encouraging everybody to, um, if you are feeling like you're bogged down by life and will never get the opportunity to develop your fiber skills that um, first of all, don't wait until you're 65 and actually retire because that's just, I hear people saying that and I say, don't do that. You'll, you'll regret it. Um, life is too short to spend all your time working for someone else. Um, a simple life where you're not spending all your time trying to fill it with consumer goods is to me the way to go and to be 
able to have a tremendously fulfilling life and develop those those creative skills that everybody has yeah. and um, don't don't be don't think that because you can't paint a Picasso that you're not an artist or something <laughs> that we all have we all have artistic and creative abilities and just exercise those creative muscles what a great way to send us off thanks so much Lori it's great having you you're welcome, you're welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today on Fiber Variety Hour. This has been an interview with Lori Avesque from Natural Cycles Farm. You can find her and her farm on Instagram at Nat Cycles Farm. That's N-A-T Cycles Farm. Or on Facebook, Natural Cycles Farm. And their website is naturalcyclesfarm.com. You can find out where Lori's going to be with her fiber products, as well as uh, her and her partner, Pete, sell their produce and other farm goods at several local farmers markets. So be sure to check out their website to see where you can find them at. Uh, and then, of course, this weekend, Sunday, June 13th at noon Eastern Standard Time, Lori will be selling her fleeces live on the Woolen Fiber Arts Group. And there's a, the fleece sale goes on all weekend, so don't miss out on those other farms too. Check out and see who's going to be selling their fleeces live on the Woolen Fiber Arts Group on Facebook. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks. <laughs>